Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Warren Horton, sports consultant, and remember, if you don't shoot, you don't score, and goals pay the rent. So if we go right back to the beginning, Warren, at what point did you think to yourself for the first time, I'm going to be a footballer? Well, I could walk, I suppose, because <laughs> as soon as I started walking, I started kicking a ball around and with my dad and with all my friends and fell in love with it. It, it felt natural to me, Andy, playing football, walking around, kicking a ball. I even remember my parents, my mom telling me that the first pair of boots I had, I slept in them. That's how obsessed <laughs> I was at the time. So, yeah, it, it was something that as soon as I could walk, as soon as I had a feel for football, as soon as I saw it on the TV, I, I fell in love with it. And that's what I wanted to do. But I, I suppose like, we grew up at a, a similar time, didn't we, in, in like the, the, the 70s and 80s, late 70s and early 80s. So yeah. I, I, I guess... Like football was a lot more of a social thing there. Like street football was a lot more of a, a yeah. social thing, wasn't it? With kids on your estate or on your road or whatever. That's how we played. We it, there would. I always harp on about this to to my kids and to my peers. Where I grew up in, I grew up in an area of Birmingham called Lee Bank, and the local school was a school I didn't go to. Mm. So I went to another school, and it was a rubbish school for football. So I made my mum change school so I could play for a better football team. That's how obsessed I was with football. And most of the kids I played football with went to the best school, which was Lee Bank. So I made sure I was there. I played football with them in the streets. I played football with them on pitches. These were the days where you played football on the grass and the caretaker would chase you off. And then 10 minutes later, when the caretaker was gone, you go back and play. That's how much we were in love with football. So there were about 20, 30 or 40 of us kids on his estate and we would just all play football. 
football all year round, obviously a bit of cricket as well, but that's just how it was. Wherever there was a space, we wanted to play football. I love that story about being chased off, Warren, because I think my my favourite near miss with um, an angry sort of adult when I was a kid, I, I was I was about probably 12 and just playing on our estate and um, our, our ball just tapped the van of this workman and he had a pickaxe and he put his pickaxe through the ball and he told me that next time it, my ball touched his his, his car that w- that ball would be me and I thought well firstly that's a bit harsh and secondly now you put a pickaxe for it it's very unlikely it's going to be touching your car or, or anything at all uh, from, from this point on but how do you get from that point where you're playing with your mates just playing from the love of it to the interest of Leicester and a, a road a genuine discernible road to becoming a pro before that, Andy, it was Sunday League football. We That's right. where I started. It was school football where I was 9, 10, 11 years old. Then I signed. Then I joined Aston Villa till I was 14. Right. It would be me, Dean Sturridge, that Daniel's uncle, yeah, and Terry Fleming, who went on to play professional football for, for Coventry and Northampton as well. Some A lot of people remember him as well. So it would be us three kids. We'd be... 10, 11, 12, 13, we'd be travelling on the bus to either to a place called Aston Villa Leisure Centre, which is near the training ground, which is near Villa Park. Yeah. And we were the only ones there who would be travelling in the evenings without their parents because all most of the other kids were white kids, middle-class kids, and their parents mm. would drive them to this place. So we'd get two or three buses just to get there. So inevitably, most of the time, we were late and it was always a bit of a running joke. Uh, these three kids were always late. So, strangely enough, I was the one who lasted the longest at Aston Villa. Dean Storage got released. He joined. He joined Derby, as you know. Terry yeah. got released and joined Coventry. I lasted till I was fourteen. I don't know how, but I lasted till <laughs> I was fourteen. And when they released me, it was like my world was going to fall apart. And I thought, I'm never going to play football again. It's never going to happen for me. It was devastating. That was my first rejection as someone who loved football and someone who played football. And I just kept playing. I kept playing Sunday League football. Then eventually, a few months later, um, a guy called Sammy Chapman, who no longer is no longer with us, was the former Wolves manager. He was one of the chief scouts at Leicester. And he got me over to play at Leicester. And he, and he sort of picked me up as well. And he kind of gave me my confidence back to make me yeah. believe that I still am a good player. So I went from, from 14 to the age of 16. And even before I'd left school, David Pleat came up to me, who was the manager of Leicester, the first team manager, and said, we will be offering you a, well, it was then a YTS contract. So yeah. that was a great feeling, knowing at the age of 16, before I'd even left school, I knew what I was going to do. I knew what I, I, knew what I wanted to do anyway. So that was a great sort of way to sort of restore my own personal confidence in me as a person, as a young kid, and as a footballer as well. So uh, how, how did it work? Did Dean get picked up by Derby first or did you get picked up as uh, by Leicester first, which which happened? I don't know. Uh, we we kind of lost touch because that was the only way. Us travelling from where, wherever we were, meeting up to go to Aston Villa Leisure Centre was yeah. the only time we actually saw each other. The, okay. the next time I saw Dean was on a, was when um, they was when I was I'd signed for Leicester and he came trotting out of of um of the changing rooms, Captain Captain Derby. 
Right. So he just gave me the look and we just laughed at each other on the pitch. <laughs> we're kind of back where we were as well. And the next time I saw Terry was when we went to Coventry's training ground when we played against them as well. Right. So it's, it's, it's one of those things where you just like rock up and you know a few faces and yeah. That's how and in, in that in that in, in his youth team as well, Derby was a a, a certain Lee Carsley. I'd right. always have run, I'd always have running battles with Lee because he played for a Sunday league team called Lodge Cottrell, Lodge Cottrell and okay. Three Seas, which is the Catholic Community Centre. Right. And I played for St Anne's. So even when we were from the ages of twelve to sixteen, we'd have running battles with each other, and it was strange because. He would. He went off to Derby. I went off, off to Leicester. Then all of a sudden, we all came back, and then it was all these sort of old Sunday League clashes that were sort of reformed, playing for professional clubs. So, what did you learn while you were at Leicester? I learned how to be a better footballer. Obviously, you you learn. I was a centre forward then. I was a midfield. I was an attacking midfielder who kind of made his way as a striker because I was quite lazy. Really, that's the only reason why they put me up front. <laughs> Because I was lazy and I didn't want to track back. So that's the way I became a striker. So what the, one of the first things you learn is those days it was 4-4-2. So you learn how to play with a, with a partner. You yeah. learn how to watch your partner make runs. And you'd learn how to, how to make runs off your centre-forward partner. For example, if the first centre-forward went, went short, you automatically went long. Mm. You spun in and made a run behind him. That's the sort of things... Basic four four two pattern of play, and the other thing I learned as well is that you needed to be really fit because one of the first days we went to Leicester, we they made us do a ten, made us do ten laps around the pitch, and I think probably four of us completed it because we literally couldn't do it. That's that's the standard of fitness you needed, and it also taught me taught me discipline. It taught me to have discipline in terms of doing my jobs, which I'm sure something we'll discuss as well. Yeah. Everyone there, it was a YTS team. You, it was YTS forms. You had to do jobs every day. You had, I had three professional boots to clean. I had to clean the gym. I had to make sure the manager, Brian Little, Alan Evans, John Gregory had tea and toast every morning. Wow. All these things had to be done. So if I didn't do my job properly, the consequences were, after training, the other guys in my team couldn't go home. So again, it, it you had individual um, responsibility and it taught you collective responsibility as well, which is the same thing that you could apply to the pitch. Because if you don't do your job properly, that affects your other 10 teammates. Yeah, that, that's an interesting learning that actually, isn't it? I mean, do you kind of look at younger footballers now and have to resist the temptation to say, you know, you've, you've been a bit lucky and... In, in not having this? Or do you feel that they're at a disadvantage even in, in, in not having I think they were a slight disadvantage because I remember I was 25 or 26 going up to Sheffield United on trial. Neil Warnock was a manager. Right. And this, for me, was my last chance of getting back into the pro game as far as I was concerned. I was training with the first team, loving it, doing really well, scoring goals for the reserves. But I remember sitting in the changing room with the young players after training. And there was about 20 kids just sitting there laughing and joking. And I looked around the corner and there was three or four contract cleaners cleaning the football boots. Right. And I looked at the contract cleaner cleaning these football boots and I looked at these players, kids. I thought, that's what you should be doing. Mm. That's part, for me, that was part, that was, that was a rite of passage 
it was something that for me that they had to do, but that was a time where they were moving away from that because the PFA, one or two other boards, um, governing bodies in football didn't think that was the right thing to do. I personally disagree with it. You'll have other people who've gone through the professional system who are a lot older than me and had a much bigger and much more um, more successful career than me will think that it's a rite of passage. It's learning, doing jobs. It's about, as I said, it's about learning your trade. It's about having respect. It's it's learning, it's discipline as well. You you speak, you go, you, you will have worked with a lot of ex-professional footballers, Andy. They're very rarely late because mm. we come from a culture where if you're late, you get fined. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean... When you eventually got released by Leicester, you talked about how devastating it was when, when Villa let you go when you were 14. Did what you learned in the interim at Leicester in terms of discipline and that initial knockback help you deal with it once you were thrust into non-league and sort of closer, no. I suppose, to Sunday football? No, it didn't because I saw a pathway to the first team at Leicester. Right. But... I was slightly unlucky in some ways, but when I look back, I didn't. I was, I was, a, I was talented. I had, I had natural talent to play football, yeah. but I didn't apply myself, Andy. I, I always thought it would just happen because I was good enough. Right. And the other thing that let me down was I was slight. I, I physically hadn't developed. So, as a young, small centre forward, I was getting pushed off the ball a lot. That was one of the big problems that I had from the age of. 18 to 20 playing right. reserve football, playing against men. I was getting brushed off the ball far too easily. And that was the biggest thing that held back my development to actually getting into the first team. So you're moving from that professional environment to essentially non-league and I was effectively being unemployed. So again, yeah. you go back to a right yes system where on a Thursday, you would go and do a college course of sport and recreation. I mm. absolutely hated it. It was a complete waste of time. I mm. told them I didn't want to do it. I told them I was interested in journalism from that time. And I oh, wanted really? to do an A-level. I wanted to do A-level English. Okay. The problem was because I looked around for courses and nothing fitted in with what I want with my football day, where you right. train in the morning, do your jobs, trade and do your jobs in the afternoon. So effectively when you're 16, 17 and you're part of the youth team, you're aiming to be in the reserves and the reserves played in the evening. So I couldn't go to night school. Yeah, That's yeah. what really hampered me. So at 20, when I'm released, because I was, I think I was fifth or sixth choice striker in the reserves. Ironically, I, I was released when I was top scorer for the reserves as well. But there was just yeah. no pathway for me. I had no, I could play football. I had no qualifications. I had absolutely nothing to sort of lean back on or fall back on and go into the real world. And it was a huge shock. And I, I struggled to deal with not able to get a job or earn any money when I was when I went home to stay with my mum. And then balancing that with trying to get my football career back on track. I went to trial at Northampton and, and, and Hereford and a few other clubs. And it just didn't work out because you're going from a team like Leicester who were trying to get into the Premier League Mm. to essentially League Two clubs where they have squads of about 15 or 16 and they just didn't really have the money. And I mean, was that even tougher for a, a player of your profile who, as you said, was quite slight and maybe suited in some ways to a higher level of football? I mean, in, in another way as well, do you look at 
modern football and think how, say, the Premier League's evolved and players who are quite slight and technically gifted can thrive in a way that maybe they couldn't even 10 years ago. Were you almost born into the to the wrong time? I, w- I wouldn't go that far. I just think I just think it was my own personal physical development. I was two right. or three years behind when when um when 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 it when when I was going through that period of from about sixteen to eighteen or nineteen. I could I could deal with certain physical situations, but it was just that one on one physical battle with a, with a with a defender that I struggled with in certain ways. I preferred the ball over the top to chase. I preferred the ball with when I was in, I prefer having a ball when I was in space, but if I had to grapple with a defender nine times out of 10, I'd lose out. And that's where the problem was because it got to a point where I knew for a fact that some of my colleagues wouldn't pass to me in certain areas because I couldn't deal with the ball. And that's what I struggled with. So it took me to about, it took me mentally and physically about three years to recover. Right. That's okay. how, yeah. I actually, I remember thinking to myself, I ended up going to Starbridge, Stafford Rangers, ended up at a place called Sutton Coalfield Town. And I remember standing there training once thinking, I can't do this anymore. I was 23, 24. I thought, I've had enough and I was really going to quit. And luckily, I spoke to a friend of mine who was over at Tamworth, who were playing really good football then. Mm. He told me to come over and train with them and come and enjoy my football again. And all of a sudden, it felt like I was somewhere where it was a fresh start for me. The players, some of the players knew me and knew what I could do. And instantly, for even from the first training session, I felt home. I felt somewhere where people trusted me and respected me and got myself back on track enjoying football again. So what were you doing off the pitch at, at this time to make ends meet? I was my, I remember, strangely enough, I was doing, this was something that really hampered me as well because I couldn't find any work. I couldn't find anything, any work because I didn't really know how to look for a job, essentially. Right. And I didn't have any qualification. I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I ended up doing some really rubbish sort of sales jobs. But the problem was I was going out demonstrating burglar alarm systems in the evening when I should have been training. So all that fitness that I built up as a professional Right. Went within seven or eight months. Right. And okay. I, all that fitness, and I was basically down to a non league level of fitness. And, and, and again, that hampered me because, in theory, I was supposed to be better than the other guys technically, and I was supposed mm. to be fitter as well. So, all those disadvantages, all that disadvantage that, all the advantage, sorry, that I had was completely gone within six months. And I was just literally another non league player. So how did Tamworth change that for you? Because you had three and a half seasons there. You are really, really successful. Some, well, all Tamworth supporters will still remember you for the goals you scored in the FA Cup against Berry in in 99. You formed this great partnership with Mark Hallam. I mean, didn't Kenny Dalglish end up giving you a a bronze predator for all those those goals you scored in the the Southern Prem? I I hope that's still on the bookshelf, by the way. Do you know what? I'm talking to you now and I can see that predator boot right now in the front room. Good. That's, good. That That's good to know. With that picture with Kenny Dalglish. It was an incredible day because it was the first year of the non-league awards and they showed you how times have changed. It was, they gave us the award for the most highest goals in a strike partnership. Now you wouldn't get that now, would you? So 
That's nice, we isn't it? The idea of a team ethic. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So we went to this hotel in West London. We sat down, myself and Mark Hallam. And I looked over there. I said, Mark, look, I see Jan Moby. And he goes, oh, yeah, yeah, there's Jan Moby. And then I said, then I tapped again. Look, it's Kenny Dalgleish. He goes, no, it's not. Oh, it's Kenny Dalgleish. He goes, no, it's not. <laughs> so we get called up for the ward. Guess who's presenting us with the ward? I said, I told you, it's Kenny Dalgleish. So we sat there on the stage with Kenny Dalgleish with these Predator boots. And then Kenny says, these boots are nice, aren't they? He goes, I wouldn't mind having one of these. I said, Kenny, I'll swap you all your medals, all the league medals, all your European Cup medals for this boot. He looks at me and says, nah. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you don't ask, you don't get, I, I, I suppose. I suppose. What, what is it? What was it uh, um, about Tamworth that, that, that made you thrive? I mean, I, I know you said immediately what, what made you settle, but how far how far ahead were you by the time that that you were a couple of seasons in there it was a complete reset for me because as i said my my confidence was rock bottom i didn't think i could play i didn't want i didn't actually want to play so i got around a group of people who were good players and and the manager believed in me so i played a few games for the reserves and I got in and around the first team. And again, I go back to me being a lazy footballer. They were playing they were playing 3-5-2 at the time. And I got into the team playing as the so-called number 10 or the playmaker behind two strikers. Okay. And as time got on, I, wouldn't, I wasn't tracking back. I couldn't be bothered to run back. So what I made sure I did, I made sure I scored plenty of goals. So it got to the point where I was undroppable and he had to move me further forward because I didn't want to run back. So that's how I got into <laughs> the team. And, and old-fashioned striking, I like that. Yeah, Mark Hallam came about season afterwards, and we just hit it off because it was a classic big man, little man strike partnership. Right. Okay. Okay. So further on from there, um, you end up going to uh, Woking. You end up playing for Dulwich Hamlet as 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 well as you, as you move down south. I mean, what precipitated the move down south, and at what point do you think football's done? I've got to actually find a profession that I'm into. Well, the the plan was for me and my now wife to, to move to London. I was getting into radio and journalism at the time. I mm. got my feet on the ground. I've, I've done a couple of radio college courses. And so when did you do this? I, I did a, it was a, called an open college network. Okay. Program, and it was a, it was a radio course designed for unemployed people where you did a certain amount of training and then it was called, then at the end of it, you did a 28-day RSL, which is a restricted service license for okay. people who don't know. So it was a 28-day broadcast where you you did everything. You, you produced shows, you hosted shows, you read the news, you produced the news, you wrote everything. You learned every aspect of radio. So I fell in love with it and I thought, this is what I want to do. So... We eventually, my girlfriend said to me at the time, I'm moving to London. Yes, are you coming with me? And it took me about three seconds to actually say, yeah, I'm going to come. So then I thought, I've got to go and tell Tamworth. I had another year left, left on my contract. Everything was going fine. Gary Mills was the new manager at the time. We got on fine. I said to him, Gary, I'm moving to London and I'm not coming back. So he says, well, what about the year left on your contract? I said, I'm not coming back to train. So you're going to have to sell me. He had no choice because I was moving. Yeah. So I joined Woking again. 
it was good for me financially. Got me, it helped me get me on a a, a good footing because, as we all know, London's a very expensive place for sure. To be. And again, it helped. That helped me because, as I said, financially, it paid the bills, it paid the rents, and it allowed me to go out there and find myself in terms of getting a job and making my way around London. So that's where I, I met a few people that worked at TalkSport. And then, as you said, as time moved on and work started to come in when I was working at TalkSport and I was working at Haters as well, because that was a great learning curve. I kind of scaled back the football in terms of not wanting to travel too far. So that's when I moved to Dulwich. And admittedly, I, I didn't play my best football at Dulwich. And I'm sure Dulwich fans will agree with that. So again, and then I moved to Barking as well, which was a local, which was local to me in East London, and yes. had I really enjoyed my, my two seasons there. And after that, I, I just called it a day, concentrated fully on being a journalist. So was it was it gradual, or did you just wake up one morning and think, "I'm not a footballer anymore. I'm a journalist." No, because how it was working was after I left. After I left, I oh, sorry, I'll start that again. How it worked was, after I left Woking, I went to play a season at Tamworth under Liam Daish. And work was starting to take off. I was starting to become, I was starting to work three or four days at Talk Sport. I was getting some work at Haters. Mm. And I, there, was a, there, was a, there was a few times where I thought to myself, it's three, four o'clock in the afternoon. I'm in North London, or I'm in Central London. Do I want to go all the way down to Portsmouth on the train and train this evening? Mm. <laughs> And it got to a point where I was playing well. I was enjoying go. I was actually enjoying playing at Haven, but I just wanted to stay local. Mm. So I started playing a lot more local football, and it just made a lot more sense. So that's how it worked. And I remember when I let we were all playing well at Barking, but the club went bust as well. Mm. And I was on trial at to Enfield Town. It was the first half and I stood in the middle of the pitch, Andy, and I thought to myself, I can't do this anymore. Right. So for about half an hour, I just basically just jogged around the pitch. I had no interest in playing because I knew after that game, I'd never play football again. I remember I got home, told my missus, I said, listen, I've had enough. And she looked at me and laughed. I said, I said seriously, I finished. I'm never playing football again. And I haven't really since. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So, so it was interesting to hear you mention haters before. I mean, I know a lot of people who who started there, and it is, you know, a very um, traditional newsy sort of environment. Was that almost like Leicester for you in terms of teaching you discipline of the trade? How I, well, I must thank Rob McCaffrey who introduced me to Jerry Cox, who is still there. And Nick Keller, they were fantastic to me as well. So I would go there a couple of days a week and mm. I, was just, I would just train. They would send me to press conferences. They threw me in at the deep end and told me to get on with it and told me, explain what they were, explain what they were around, what they were about, and just told me to get on with it. And I, I learned the hard way. I learned by making mistakes, Andy. I made yeah. lots and lots of mistakes, but I learned. I remember one example, we went they sent me to an Audley Harrison press conference when he was riding high. Oh, wow. So I got all the quotes. So that this was in central London. Mm. I traveled back from central London to their, to their base, their office in Tottenham Hale. So they said to me, where's the story? I said, I'm going to do it now. I said, Warren, we need you to be doing that story. as and when you're at the press conference, not just recording the press conference, taking an hour to get back to us, then looking to actually transcribe it then mm. make an article. I see. They said to me, those days are over. We need this stuff instantly. So again, that taught me to basically get on with your work, get the quotes down and, and knock out a story. All those things were, it was a really good breeding ground for me. And I'll always owe them a debt of gratitude. That's why I'm always, I'm still in touch with Nick Callow and, and Jerry Cox to this day. They're, they're good guys and I'll never, ever forget um, the help they gave me. So when we first met each other at, at TalkSport, that newsy side of you always kind of came across, I think. And how much of the way you worked at TalkSport was to do with that training, the fact that you were made to get your hands dirty, and how much of it was the fact that you'd come from a professional football background and it was maybe easier for you to get the confidence of, of your subjects, particularly footballers? Well, what helped me get in at TalkSport was the fact that I was playing a good a good standard of football anyway. So yeah. I think they were intrigued with me. So they gave me the opportunity to, to work there and learn the ropes. And the fact that I wasn't getting paid at the time helped, I suppose. But I could have but I was in that I was in a privileged position, Andy. I could afford not to actually work because I was earning good money playing football. Right. So I could focus on learning as much as I could about TalkSport and moving up the ranks. And in terms of how I am as a person it helps because I knew a lot of footballers mm. and all the people who have grown up with me from my age, as I mentioned, Dean Sturridge, Lee Carsley, all these guys are friends of mine. They might not be there. I know that there'll be other people listening to this thing, knowing that these guys are guys that they watch as football fans, but these guys mm. are friends of mine. Yeah. So they're, they're my peers. So it's, well, it's easy a small for me community, to isn't it? It's, football's quite a small yeah. community, isn't it? It is, and I remember. I remember when we were playing at Tamworth, and Lee Carsley had gone to just 
had a big move to Blackburn, as people remember. And yeah, we had a mutual friend called Michael Moore, who's still coaching as well. He, he coached Birmingham ladies. He's still coaching at a good level of non-league. And he put, he put Lee on the phone to me and we had a good chat. And that, those sorts of friendships are still there. You know, Harvey, so solid crew played with me at Lewis. We were still in touch. We had a great time playing football together. So all these people, when I worked with them then, I'm still in touch with now the likes of Junior Caddy, Gavin Rose, who are the management team at Dulwich Hamlets. Yeah. We're all still in touch. So those are the sort of relationships that I've been able to sort of maintain and sort of keep going. And they, 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 they've helped me from then and they, they're still help being of benefit to me now. And TalkSport is pretty special as well, isn't it? I mean, we both work there extensively. And I, I guess what people um, who just just listen to it don't really maybe grasp sometimes is the, the fact that you get this enormous freedom there. That, that what, what you were saying about going to haters and being thrown in at the deep end, I found certainly when I started working at, at, at TalkSport, it was the same thing. Like, if you're good enough, you'll get a go, won't you? Yeah, that's how, that is the principle there. And even to this day, as far as I'm concerned, I still go into TalkSport and do various work with them as well. Yeah. They give you an opportunity. And if you're good enough, you'll, you'll stay there because they didn't, it was such a small team that isn't always a time to train. So you have to use your own initiative. You have to make yourself a person of value while you're there because I went there on, t- on work experience for a couple of weeks and I never left. <laughs> I, told them, I told them I'm not leaving. I told them I'm going to learn every as many different aspects of this place as I can and I'm, go- and I'm going to be an asset to you. So when I was working there, I would see people come in. They'd be looking at TV. They'd be looking at their phone. They'd be, they'd, they'd be doing everything apart from actually working and looking to impress. So I would say to them, what are you doing? I say, why don't you go and learn how to use the phones? Why don't you go and learn how to use the audio equipment? Why don't you learn the desk, how to actually help produce radio shows? Why don't you learn how to edit audio? Why don't you go and learn all these things and make yourself valuable to the company so the company keep you on after your work experience sort of um, stint has ended? Some listened, some didn't. That's their choice. Mm. But a, a big part of that is 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 the person you are, isn't it? I mean, if we go all the way back to the beginning, you're always seeking to to, to learn and look at the the next step, aren't you? And I mean, when just before you left Talksport, and we'd see each other in the office all the time, and we kept talking after that, it was it was clear to me that you were looking for something different. Now you moved to the Sun and and, and worked there for a bit. And now you've got your own company, Horton Sports, which manages the interests of, of various players, especially with regards to their media performance yeah. uh, appearances. So how did it get from you looking to do something else and how did it get from a seed in your mind to you actually doing it? I, as you mentioned, I kind of got to a point at TalkSport where I wanted to try something different. I'd always wanted to have a go at working for a newspaper. Right. And the opportunity came around where I would be able to do some broadcast online and write for the paper as well. And okay. that worked out. I did, I did three years and it was invaluable. It was an invaluable experience 
of me working at the Sun, and it taught it, it taught me many things. It it taught me how the it, one of the things it taught me was was where the business is moving to, and it's yeah. online. So obviously, we've talked about you coming through a quite unusual route from the professional game through non-league into journalism. It's something we don't really see that much. But I guess another aspect of it as well is that we don't see a lot of black faces in management positions in football, whether that be head coaching, directorship, management consultancy in media. Are you conscious of being a standard bearer of sorts? That's an interesting question. I've never thought of myself as a standard bearer. I'm always looking up to people like Darren Lewis, who when I first moved to London was working at the Mirror. Now, unbeknown to me, all these years later, we've become good friends. So Mm. they're the people I've looked up to. I looked up to people like Paul Ince as a Manchester United fan. I looked up to people like Paul Parker. These guys are people that I can speak to on the phone now, and it's quite surreal. I I work with Paul Parker now. So Mm. those are the guys who, in terms of journalism and football, for example, I looked up to. And you wonder to yourself, why are people like Paul Parker and Paul Ince are not in the game at the highest level doing, offering their knowledge and experience? Why does Sol Campbell have to start at Macclesfield? Yeah. Why does Paul Ince have to start somewhere like Macclesfield? These are serious questions that we need to answer. Why is it only the likes of, of Les Ferdinand who are at the sharp end in terms of running a football club in his country? Yeah. It, there is still that racial stereotype around black men. We're not leaders. We have an attitude. We sometimes have a chip on our shoulder and we are not trusted to lead organizations. And until there are more or less Ferdinands who are in the ballrooms making those decisions, who force other members of that board to have a lot more lateral thinking in terms of their recruitment, then nothing's going to change. And it's an interesting point you make about Sol Campbell because, I mean, a lot of people have a, a certain view of him but and his personality, his perceived personality. But if you look at what he's done, as, as you say, he's shown such a desire to get involved in coaching. And this is a guy who's come from absolute elite level of playing. And I'm not saying elite level of playing should guarantee you a certain job as a coach or anything like that. Of course, the two things are quite separate. But given that background, um, that he's had to go in and, as you say, take Macclesfield, Southend, who are two clubs really who are seen as lost causes, if we're being perfectly honest. Mm. I mean, that does show just an incredible desire, determination to make his mark, doesn't it? And who was, and if you look at him as well, who was, who was the coach coming into Macclesfield working part-time with the strikers, Andy Cole. Yeah. Andy Cole, the England international, and the Manchester United treble winner. Again, it just gives you an idea of the status of these guys and where they've had to start. And all, and with all due respect to the likes of Steven Gerrard, who gets his opportunity to manage at Rangers, one of the most famous clubs in the world, mm. it just gives you an idea of, this, of, of the huge, huge disparity when it comes to opportunities for black footballers who come out the game and want to coach. I'm speaking to, to to my peers. Again, I'm at an age where I I know these guys 
from, from when we were kids. They have a professional career. They go into coaching. Some of them have told me, I don't even know. I wonder if it's even worth me doing my badges. I say, why? Because where's the jobs? Where's mm. the opportunities? That's the stage we're at. And it's, it's, I listen to this and inside I despair. But at the same time, Andy, I completely understand where they're coming from. Mm. Mm. I mean, what, what you're doing is, is, is part of something, isn't it? There's, there's no doubt about that. I mean, um, I know you, you wouldn't necessarily say this yourself, but since going full time in the consultancy, you have come a really long way in a, a really short time. So, I mean, you've been super generous with your time, Warren, as always. Um, where next? Where do, you've come so much in less than a year. So where do you expect yourself to be in a, a year or two years time? I just look to keep working hard and being smart or smarter because I'm running a business for the first time. I'm, I'm kind of mm. fiddling around in the dark to pardon the expression, but I'm enjoying it. All I'm interested in doing is working with people who want to work, working with people who want to work hard and want to better themselves. There's nothing better than me seeing my clients who I've worked with right from the start, who weren't doing it much sort of media work. There's nothing better than me to see them thrive on radio or TV. And yes, I'm, I'm here to look after my family, but that gives me a great buzz to, to know that when they do something good on TV, I'll send them a text message and I'll say, that was good. Keep doing that. Or if that wasn't so good, don't do that. I'm constantly talking to these guys. I think that's something that I like to think that I offer. The fact that I'm always in touch with them before they go on air, even during they go on air, and after they go on air, I'm constantly on them to say, listen, that was good. Keep doing that. That wasn't so good. Let's have less of that. So that's something that I'm quite proud of. But like I said, I want to keep working hard. I want to keep enjoying what I'm doing. And I want to grow the business step, step by step. If you don't shoot, you don't score. And goals pay the rent. This was a Stakhanov production. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.